The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody, to this Friday edition of Sportbox. Asian markets rally, tracking gains on Wall Street as President Biden says his American rescue plan is working and the U.S. economy is showing signs of hope. Growing the economy. People's lives are changing. So let's see what happens. All I know, I've been hired to solve problems. To solve problems, not create division. The EU ducks out of an export ban as a fraught summit runs late and Commission President Ursula von der Leyen doubles down on calls for AstraZeneca to deliver. First of all, the company has to catch up, has to honour uh, the contract it has with the European member states before it can engage again in exporting, um, in exporting uh, vaccines. The Suez is still at a standstill and global trade is feeling the strain with the blockage delaying an estimated $400 million an hour in goods potentially for weeks to come. Big tech on the menu is the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter and Google face a Capitol Hill grilling on their role in spreading misinformation and lawmakers call for tighter regulations. If what you're asking is are we ever going to be perfect, the answer is no. I think that there will always be some mistakes, but I think we will get increasingly accurate over time. And it's, well, not, not quite like the shores of Lake Como, but we're still going to bring you live coverage of the European House Ambrosetti Spring Workshop. We'll uh, speak to the think tank CEO Valerio De Moli. We'll speak to the former Italian Prime Minister Mario Monti and the author and Pettifor. All ahead on Scorebox. U.S. markets are avoiding a third day of selling, but that said, we've still got a lot of choppiness in the trade behind the scenes. For instance, the S&P 500 initially slumping 1% before you saw some gains translating at the back end of the session. Also, in terms of some of the big moving stocks we've witnessed this week, some of them have been real drivers for the indices to the downside. And in a session yesterday, you saw a driver to the upside in big names like Boeing, a big rotation stock, Apple, Tesla, uh, huge drivers for the S&P in session. And also, when it comes to Tesla, for the Nasdaq. So same stocks that feels have been bought and sold, depending on the pattern of time. And that does tell you about some choppiness and volatility in the trade. Uh, some of it has been attributed to the end of month, end of quarter, window dressing that we're witnessing at this point. But uh, the, the volatility very much evident there. And perhaps it tells a story about investors looking for fresh direction at this point. And the huge rotation that we've been witnessing certainly ran into fatigue in the last week or so as investors questioned the rollout of vaccines globally, even though there's an accelerated program in the United States. Other areas of the world are seeing a much slower program, which does, of course, impact global growth in this reflation story. But uh, away from what we're seeing uh, on these uh, broader indices, uh, let's just push on to, to take a look at the, the week to date uh, away from that uh, daily trade. You can see it's not been a huge amount of direction for some of these markets, for the Dow and for the S&P. Just a slight shift lower, but a little bit more when it comes to that technology selling that we have witnessed, the 1.8% down. And it was quite telling, actually, if you take a look back at that U.S. session yesterday, 
you can see that some of the stocks were effectively just limiting the selling that they had witnessed early on. If we can switch over the charts, you can see in the backdrop, don't forget uh, there was a congressional hearing on information online, the disinformation, misinformation that's been spread Usual suspects from the likes of Facebook, Twitter, Alphabet, all appearing before a House panel required to give information. And that was a, a limiting factor for the direction of some of these stocks. Uh, um, Facebook down 1.2%, Alphabet just slightly below the flatline there, and Twitter reversing 1.3%. You did see some gains though in Apple, and that was quite interesting after some earlier pressure this week. Uh, the US banks, uh, let's take a look at that story because we've been talking about the banks through the eyes of the uh, steepening yield curve, better profitability coming into the mix. And and having a fairly good recovery uh, around the pandemic this time as they've weathered the crisis. The Fed yesterday saying they would lift restrictions on share buybacks and dividend payments for many of these U.S. lenders. The date that it is slated for the 30th of June and uh, effectively this was a unanimous decision by the Fed board as long as these banks passed the crucial stress tests. But uh, positive catalyst on those payouts as you can see one odd percent plus for some of the major stocks from Bank of America to Goldman Sachs. And Treasuries, uh, another look at uh, the rate that we're watching, 1.63%. We really haven't budged very far in the trading week. You can see we've not gone back to the 1.75% level, but I must say we have had J-Pal virtually every day talking about the recovery and the, the fairly dovish outlook. Uh, so it is one that we will continue to watch at this point. But the dollar, just worth taking a look at uh, what we are witnessing on the dollar front. A lot of analysts think that this is quite crucial. We've seen a much higher in the trade and they're wondering whether this is a tipping point now for the reflation story uh, and what it means for commodities as well. Uh, currently at this rate, uh, we've got 109.24 on dollar yen. There's a little bit of a clawback morning session on sterling versus euro, but the levels, as you can see, around euro dollar are 117. Uh, the fortunes of the euro declining on concerns around the, the vaccine rollout. Uh, that's been real catalyst for dollar strength. President Biden has doubled the number of vaccines he ha wants to see administered in the first 100 days in office, now targeting 200 million jabs. Now, the US is on target to hit that target. Apparently, it was on track, at least, having reached the initial 100 million goal by the 58th day of his presidency. Uh, Mr. Biden, uh, it was actually his first press conference of the presidency yesterday, uh, made the claim uh, as president um, yesterday, whilst also touching on immigration. There were a lot of questions about immigration, voter rights and divisions on Capitol Hill. He also hinted at signs of a recovery. Since we passed the American Rescue Plan, we're starting to see new signs of hope in our economy. Since it was passed, a majority, a majority of economic forecasters have significantly increased their projections on the economic growth that's going to take place this year. They're now projecting it will exceed 6%, a 6% growth in GDP. Well, the U.S. president also addressed tensions with China, pledging not to let Beijing come out on top. I see stiff competition with China. China has an overall goal, and I don't criticize them for the goal, but they have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch, because the United States is going to continue to grow and expand. 
Well, what shape is the U.S. economy in? Weekly jobless claims have hit the lowest level in a year. 684,000 people filed for unemployment insurance in the week ending March 20th, which was below economists' expectations and down from the previous week. That's still well above pre-pandemic levels. Nearly 19 million people are still receiving unemployment checks. The uh, U.S. economy grew at a faster pace than initially reported in the fourth quarter. GDP growth was revised up to 4.3% from 4.1% on Thursday. Financial services and healthcare were the biggest drivers, while hotels, restaurants and other businesses hit by coronavirus restrictions continue to weigh on the economy. Let's have a quick look at how we're setting up on the futures. I mean, clearly we had a uh, strong session in Asia, continues to be relatively strong as those markets come to the close for their day. Late stage bounce in the US. And of course, here we are uh, with the implied open on the US futures looking quite positive here. And Karen, I was I was interested in obviously your wall walk as always. But the thing that really stood out for me, I think, was this green light now for the banks. I know they've been told this won't happen until the end of the second quarter. But as far as I can see, the Fed and the uh, administration have effectively here just told you, go out and speculate because there is a wave of excess cash hundreds of billions, I think 200 billion was the suggestion of cash waiting to be allocated by the banks, who of course continue to sit there and have these huge deposits placed within them and other financial institutions as the Fed continues to buy $120 billion worth of assets every month here. So in a way, it's not a surprise, I think, that we've got this broader pickup in risk-taking appetite because the Federal Reserve just said, you know what, we feel so good about the banks, we're going to let that SLR expire and we're going to let them now go back into the market and soak up their own uh, equity. I think a lot of income and investors will be cheering those positive signs. You say a, a green light. They've not had a lot of green lights in the, in the last year or so with dividends ripped away because of the crisis. So that's a positive signal. But I would question what you're seeing in the actual share prices though, of these companies because we're waiting for this rotation trade to sort of kick into another gear. And I think that's run into a little bit of a headwind at this point because of what you're seeing around global markets, not necessarily in the United States because there's been such a, a swift vaccination program. But I think elsewhere there is a challenge. One of the issues that I want to raise, though, is this fighting language from Biden. For me, that's healthy competition. That could be a, a gear change from what we saw in the past where Trump was tapping into that nationalistic sentiment. But in some ways, it was a negative because he was putting up trade tariffs and trying to restrict the competition, hamstring the competition, so to speak, so that you could get this acceleration in America. It would be welcome to see Biden helping out American companies so they can rise to that challenge and be competitive. Let's hope it's a positive this time around, Steve. Yeah, a couple of points. One, did you guys see the auction? Soggy as you like. Yesterday, a bid to cover ratio on the seven-year paper, 60 billion plus. I talked about this earlier in the week and how it'd be a key metric, these uh, $180 billion worth of um, auctions. Soggy at 2.23 uh, bid to cover ratio. The yield picked up to 1.3. And you're right, Cam, we didn't get the 10-year going up to 1.7, but we did get it up to 1.64. So just picking up uh, off the lows of that. So I think this, the auction is a great indicator on the appetite for future paper. And as we all know, with all the stimulus plans and the infrastructure plans afoot, there is going to be a lot of issues 
influence this year in the States. So that was one point for me as well. The second point, I think you're spot on. I think the rotations run into a, a, a bit of a, a brick wall at the moment. When you see the NASDAQ week to date down 1.8%, the Russell 2K week to date down 4.6%, and energy stocks struggling on the falling oil price as well. It's hard to see where you can go if technology growth stocks and energy are all under a bit of pressure. But the most interesting thing I want to say to our viewers at the moment is what do you think the Schiller P-E ratio is at the moment? And I know that some of you all get this. It's from Longview Economics. The Schiller P-E ratio in the US has recently surpassed, well, what level? Fill in the year, everybody. 1929. I will leave it there. Back to you both. Steve, excellent. Let's move on. Barclays expects the global economy to expand 6.4% this year, the highest rate since 1973. The recovery follows a dip of 3.3% last year, the worst global recession since the Second World War. The bank says the US and China will be the twin engines driving the V-shaped recovery, adding that major disruptions due to runaway inflation remain unlikely. Well, Christian Keller is the head of economics research at Barclays. Christian, great to have you with us. Well, look, if, if we're going to have that level of growth, and as uh, Steve points out here, uh, valuations look very toppy across a host of asset classes, uh, money is at the wrong price at the moment, isn't it? Isn't it um, inevitable here that we're going to see higher bond yields? Um. Well, it, it's um, bond yields have moved a lot already, right? If, if you start at the start of the end of the year, I heard you talk about the ten year. You know, they were below one. Now they're you know one point six, one point seven. That's uh, you know roughly eighty basis points. Um, a lot of been a lot of this has been actually through the real yield. So there is an expectation in here for better growth in the future. So that in principle we think it's a good thing. Um, and the question is, of course, how much inflation will we get going forward and we will get a lot in the next few months that's for sure we see year-on-year inflation going up but when we look at things we think this will mostly be a transitory phenomenon and um, with inflation in particular the u.s pc inflation coming down again towards the end of the year we think we're in a pretty good spot where the fed probably won't move for a long time probably not until after 23 or end of 23 and we believe that remains combined with the growth numbers that you just mentioned, actually a quite favorable environment for, for growth assets in particular stocks. What are the problems with the analysis? And um, I mean, we're all doing it at the moment, Christian. If we have a temporary phase of cost-push cost inflation uh, running hot through the summer here, why aren't workers going to insist that they get an increase in their salaries to reflect growing inflation expectations. Uh, We talk as though we can have a clinical rise in cost push that will then wash out towards the end of the year. Ultimately, that surely will crimp growth because it will have a direct impact impact on household incomes unless workers turn around and say, well, I need to be compensated to reflect the higher purchase prices. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, if we look at labor markets, they simply no longer work uh, the way they did, and in particular not the way they did in the 70s. You know, obviously we're now reaching growth numbers where we think, well, that does remind us of you know a few decades ago. Uh, but uh, the way labor markets work, if you think about it, if we had a 3.6% uh, unemployment in the U.S. You know, uh, before we went into COVID, and the Fed was still cutting. 
uh, because you know there was not a sufficient um, you know wage growth or the kind of growth uh, in prices that the Fed would consider would bring it towards its target. And um, you know we can of course not fully know how this post-COVID economy reacts. To be frank, there's more uncertainty. But if you don't think that some of the phenomenon you know of technology etc. that you know the kind of impact they had the way labor market functions, we just doubt that this you know temporary boost in prices will immediately lead uh, to, you know, wage pressures that would then be more sustaining uh, cost pressures. And uh, one thing to say, by the way, there's a lot of excess savings with, not with every worker, but if you look at the accounts of households, uh, you know, we estimate in the U.S., you know, up to 8, 10% of excess savings having accumulated in, in deposits. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of spending power by households in aggregate, at least, I would say. And so, you know, that may also alleviate a little bit the immediate pressure people have on, on higher wages. But, but Christian, and, and I, you have a, a brilliant resume of education and, and, and experience as well, from the IMF to uh, Cologne, where you did your doctorate and all these places. At all these places, you would have had at the back of your mind the original part of economics, which was supply and demand. So regardless of what we think about inflation, if supply of bonds is going to be excessive going forward, which I think all indicators are that they are having just passed 1.9 trillion in the States and a 3 trillion coming down the road in terms of infrastructure, a lot of that isn't going to be paid for by economic growth. It's going to be paid for by new and excessive debt in many cases across the world. Surely that alone, regardless of what we think of inflation, means that we are going to see higher yields. If supply gets higher, then the buyer is just going to hold off a little bit and wait for those better yields. Well, I think we would certainly have a bit of it. And, and you know, we are seeing it now. And you mentioned some of the auctions that are, are more difficult. We would say overall, though, um, you know, in the past few years, we, I heard this a lot, you know, and then clients would say, well, supply, demand, you know, when this tapering started. And there, there was a lot always to talk about supply and demand. But ultimately... Uh, you know, if we think of the longer term yield curve as a, as a risk premium, one part and the other part being, uh, you know, the implied path for short term rates, which is effectively the, the Fed uh, rate path. Uh, you know, as long as people do not see necessarily inflation running away and the Fed having really to do a lot of hikes, uh, you know, we think that element is really what mainly affects, uh, affects the yield curve. We can add a few, you know, bit of risk premium on the term premium, you know, for, for fiscal risk. Uh, and, and supply and demand, uh, certainly, and, and risk premium has been very low. But, you know, the question is, wh what orders of magnitude do we talk? You know, and uh, we do think that if a significant infrastructure bill was to come, you know, one to two trillion or so, with that alone would add, you know, let's say 50 basis points or so to the long-term long treasuries. Uh, sure. but, um, but, you know, otherwise we tend to not to overemphasize the supply-demand argument. Yeah. OK. OK. You've, you've taken me down there and I agree with you. You're the economist. and I'm just a market punter. So I, I'm with you on this. So just give me an, a little bit of help on something else as well, which I don't understand. How can Mrs. Yellen in the last couple of days turn around and say we can get to full employment in 2022? I believe they were her words in testimony to Congress. We can get to full employment next year, she said. But we're not going to raise rates to the end of the following year. Oh, I'm still struggling with that one, Christian. Yeah, I, to, to be honest, you got me there. I'm not sure whether but she really said full employment by the end of uh, 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 next year. Well, that's 22. Sorry. Yes, we have it at 4.4 or so end of this year. 
you continue. I think there's at the moment, to be frank, there's a little bit of an experimental process of what full employment already is. I, I listened to Paul uh, last week and he mentioned maximum employment. You know, there's, there's I think, um, a lot of questions around, you know, at a labor force participation at the U.S. In, at the moment of 61%. We went into the crisis as I think it was 63.3 something. You know, there's a lot of talk about how many, uh, uh, you know, people are still not really participating into the labor market. And, and Ms. Yellen, you know, uh, before she took the, that role, she had, you know, she's a labor market economist. I mean, she always talked about the ability to let the economy run hot. And, and I think there is this feeling that, the definition of what they call the non-acceleration, non-acceleration uh, natural employment, and I will, uh, you know, it's no longer clear where it really is, uh, you know, whether it's at four point something or maybe at three point something and how many people can get back in the labor market. So I, I, I stop here, but you get the picture. It's, I, I think we may get levels uh, that we would consider, you know, full, that were considered full employment in the past, but there may be more that, you know, they hope to squeeze out of the U.S. labor market by getting people back to work that weren't working before. Christian, can we talk about the divergence with Europe? Because as we hear from Janet Yellen about the, the merits of going large, throwing everything at the economy, allowing it to grow much, much faster rates and reflating, uh, allowing the economy to get back on its feet, repay debt, and then eventually move away from this extraordinary monetary policy. It feels as though Europe is not on the same page. I was just looking at some of the growth numbers you're, you're suggesting for 2021, 3.9%, 4.3% in 2022, but saying that you only see real GDP reaching pre-crisis levels by the second quarter of 2022. I mean, the economy in Europe wasn't growing that quickly anyway before the crisis. Don't we need much more stimulus than what we've seen from Europe if we're going to follow the same playbook that the United States is following at this stage? Yeah, I mean, you make some very fair points. You know, I mean, Europe is basically a year behind of reaching pre-COVID levels. Uh, as you point out, Europe typically has a, has a slower you know, trend growth already. But it's true that the Europeans have been They've been very focused uh, on protecting workers through all these furlough schemes and their different names, but they all basically uh, keep people uh, in their jobs when U.S. unemployment was rising, um, you know, to, to protect their jobs. But the fact is that the fiscal program overall uh, was smaller. Uh, when you look at what the European Union has been doing through the, you know, the recovery fund, it's very much investment focused. It kicks in the second half of this year. But the numbers are smaller, certainly, than, than what the U.S. has done, uh, which is, we have to say, that's very, very new for the U.S. We have not seen programs like this. Um, and it's also in, the, in Europe very much investment-oriented. I think the only, you know, the positive thing one could say is that typically this investment-focused, uh, you know, uh, spending has a higher multiplier, as we call it, and therefore it should lead. Uh, to a bigger impact on growth, in, in particular potential growth, so long, longer-term growth. Um, but, you know, as you know, Europe is more complicated. Um, I think there has been a certain turn, in particular in Germany, you know, the debt break and all these things that have been, you know, keeping, uh, keeping the governments from being more uh, fiscally supportive. They, they are gone. Uh, so I think Europe will continue to do a bit more than they did in the past, but they will probably continue to to lag uh, the US and I think there's no uh, you know there's no no thing around it that that's a fact Christian, good to have you on the programme. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up on another day. Christian Keller, Head of Economics Research at Barclays. So EU leaders sparred over the distribution of extra COVID vaccines at a tense summit meeting, but there was no export ban. We'll tell you more about it when we come back. 
And for more from President Biden's first press conference and his comments on China and the economy, you can check out the Spork Fox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. EU leaders clashed over supplying extra doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID vaccine to some member states following a marathon virtual meeting. But lawmakers agreed to improve the rollout of inoculations in the bloc amid growing fears of a fresh wave of infections across the continent. And isn't that the point here, Sylvia, that as all this uh, sabre-rattling was going on over restricting access to the vaccines, the clear reality is the process of vaccinating people within certain countries is just not happening as quickly and as efficiently as it should be. Tell us more about the uh, bickering that was taking place at this summit. Well, so you're right in saying that uh, there's not a homogeneous view when you look at how vaccinations have been going on across the 27. There are disparities. Some countries are ahead than others. And one of the reasons behind that is, for instance, because some countries decided to buy COVID-19 vaccines that have not yet been approved by the EMA. So, for instance, that's the case of Hungary, which at the moment has one of the highest vaccination rates in the EU. But all in all, the leaders, the message yesterday was that they are still concerned uh, about the fact that AstraZeneca has been under-delivering to the bloc and going forward they are worried that this will continue. And the reason, and the thing that to remember here is that uh, the AstraZeneca shot is very important for the wider rollout in the EU. Some countries invested a lot in this vaccine because they, they thought it would be more convenient, it is cheaper than others, it is easier to store and if there are delays in the deliveries in the second quarter that could compromise the wider rollout as well. And it's in this context that the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen explained yesterday the reason why the EU is stepping up the legislation on exports of COVID-19 vaccines produced in the bloc. Let's take a look. Companies have to honour their contract to uh, the European Union before they um, export um, to other regions in the world. And this is, of course, the case with AstraZeneca. Um, I think it is clear for the company that, first of all, the company has to catch up, has to honor uh, the contract it has with the European member states before it can engage again in exporting, um, in exporting uh, vaccines. The reciprocity element is something where we needed also transparency to show how much is going in different countries that are also producing vaccines so that it is in our common interest that supply chains stay intact, that an exchange of vaccines is the normal state of play. In that same press conference, Ursula von der Leyen shared some data. She said that since December, the bloc has exported 77 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines produced in the bloc 
But when you compare that to how many vaccines have been administered in the 27, that's at the moment at 62 million doses. So that, that's why you heard von der Leyen there saying that the EU needs to explain to European citizens why it's exporting more vaccines than what the population in the 27 are actually getting. But all in all, Steve, the 27 supported this, this tougher stance from the Commission and the tougher rules on the exports of COVID-19 vaccines going forward. All right. I just love the fact that Mark Rutter had to explain to the European Commission how a global supply chain works. But a useful lesson in economics and international trade from the new and uh, recently re-elected Dutch Prime Minister. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.